Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. So what were some of the evidences for the resurrection of Messiah? Well, one of the key evidences is the empty tomb. That's pretty good evidence. Some said they went to the wrong tomb. But you know, every year this time I reread all of the resurrection accounts. And it tells how the women went to the tomb where he was laid. It even says in one account they sat near the tomb where he was placed in. It seems to me they would know what tomb he was placed in. It's not like a giant cemetery with all these stones. It was a cave in a wall with a big rock that was marked by a Roman seal because there were Roman guards. It wouldn't have been hard to find the right tomb where he was laid. And when they went to that tomb, the tomb was empty. It's obvious it was empty. Because if it wasn't empty, and the Jewish leaders knew it wasn't empty, that was their argument against the disciples that Yeshua was the Messiah. Because he said, and they repeated, that he would rise after three days, the third day of Passover. Which would have been Thursday this year, but Sunday that year. And so if it was present with the, with the Lord's body, the Jewish leaders would have loved that because they would have charged tickets for people just to see it. And they would have said, see, we told you he was a liar and he would not rise. But they couldn't do that because when they went to the tomb, it was empty. The Romans who guarded the tomb, they would have loved to have had a full tomb because they too were not too happy with Messiah's claims. They were pagans. And they didn't want to think the Jews really had it right after all. And so the Romans would have loved for the tomb to have been filled with his body. But the disciples, now that's another interesting thing, because if the body of Messiah was there and the disciples knew it, why would they suffer the indignities and the kinds of deaths they endured for what they knew was a lie? They knew he was in the tomb, so why suffer to the extent to which they suffered for their faith in what they knew to be a lie? People might suffer what they think is the truth, but no one's going to suffer for what they know is a lie. And yet the disciples did just that. But it's not just the empty tomb, but there's a very interesting testimony that strikes me all the time when I read it. If you want to look at it with me, in John chapter 20, 
we're told that as the disciple Peter and John make their way to the tomb. Now keep in mind, Messiah told them to meet them in Galilee. But they stay in Jerusalem. Which is kind of interesting to think about because when you read the account, they stayed there for over a week before they listened to Messiah to go to Galilee. And yet Messiah appears to them in Jerusalem, which shows you just how much he loves them. He kept saying, go to Galilee, go to Galilee. Okay, you're not going to Galilee? Well, I'll visit you here. But when he visits the them, he says, go to Galilee, I'm going to meet you there. You know. <laughs> so he's a loving Savior, isn't he? But in John chapter 20, when Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb early and she sees that it is empty in verse 20, she ran and she came to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple who Jesus loved, that's John, he said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've let, laid him. So Peter and the other disciple, they run forth to go to the tomb. It's really fascinating because the first ones to the tomb are women. Which only shows how trustworthy the account is. Because in the first century, no one would do that in order to try to convince you that this is true. Because the testimony of women was not even acceptable. So for a writer to say, look, the women were the first ones there. I know it shouldn't have been the women, it should have been the men, but it was the women, you know. And so they were very honest about what they're portraying. Peter, of course, is older and obviously slower than John. And so when John gets there, he gets to the tomb first, but he's a little weirded out by being at the tomb. And so he gets to the tomb, but he doesn't go in. It says in verse 5 that he just stooped and he looked in. And here's the thing that strikes me in verse 5. It says he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And then it says that Peter came, he followed him, he enters the tomb. And he saw the linen wrapping, wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying where the linen wrappings, but they were rolled up in place by itself. And then it says, then the other disciple, there's John, now he got brave and he comes into the tomb and he entered and he saw and he believed. As yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So they go away again to their own homes. But here's what's interesting about this account. Not only is the empty tomb witness to the resurrection, but the grave clothes are. And that's why this is written here. And of course, this is John's gospel. He's telling us a firsthand account of what he experienced. And he's telling us that when he got to the tomb, he uses one Greek word that he saw the linen wrappings. The Greek word there means he observed something. What he observed were the wrappings that were in the tomb. But when Peter goes in, a different Greek word is used about him seeing how they were laid out. That Greek word means he began to contemplate, roll it over in his mind. He's thinking about the condition in which the wrappings were found. John gets there, he's just stooping in, he sees wrappings. He expects to see wrappings because the Messiah was wrapped in linen cloth, then with over a hundred pounds of spices laid, layered in between the wrappings so that he was like in a cocoon. And the first thing that went over his face was a face cloth that was wrapped around. Then the wrappings would go around that and it was over a hundred pounds. So those that said that he only swooned in the, in the tomb, 
forget the writer who came up with that idea, the Passover plot. He just swooned on the cross. He didn't really die on the cross. He, Sean Feld, Hugh Sean, right? There we go. He just swooned. <laughs> I like the word. He swooned on the cross. Despite all the blood, the spear in his side, the na nails, all of that, he just swooned. <laughs> and then they took him down, and he's just continuing to swoon. And then they wrap him in a hundred pounds of wrappings and linen and uh, spices, and he's still swooning. And then they put him in the tomb for three days of swoon. And then somehow... After three days, he no longer swoons, but he rises. And he breaks out of the hundred pounds of linen. And he pushes the stone. And then he does a thing on the Romans. And then he walks off into the sunset, as it were, on his nail-scarred feet. I don't know, you know, I mean... <laughs> How do you believe that? How do you even come to write such garbage? No matter what your name is and how many initials you have after it. That just makes absolutely no sense to someone like me. And that's not saying much. But to think that explains the empty tomb. But it doesn't explain what they saw. For if he had indeed broken out of a hundred pounds of wrappings, they wouldn't have been laid neatly down on the slab with the head covering folded and put by the head apart from the rest of the wrappings. That's what Peter was contemplating. How did that happen? I mean, if he just broke through, the stuff would be all over the place. How is it that it's laid out perfectly with the cloth separated from the rest of it? And then it says John goes in the tomb. Another Greek word is used where it says he saw, but now he doesn't just observe, but he saw with his heart. And the meaning is that he embraced what was there. He still couldn't quite describe or define it as the resurrection, but he knew the Lord passed through those cloths, much like he would pass through doors and just appear and then disappear. Or on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, he would appear, then he's eating with them, and he's gone. The resurrected body of Messiah is different than the incarnate body of Messiah. The incarnate of body of Messiah could be placed on the cross, but the resurrected body of Messiah cannot be contained by anything. That's because he is alive. So how do we know he's alive? The tomb is empty. If it wasn't empty, the Pharisees would have loved it. The Romans would have loved it. The disciples wouldn't have suffered the way they did. If the tomb wasn't empty, they would not have seen the grave clothes in that unique configuration that they saw it. But there's more. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Messiah was seen alive. He was seen alive by as many as 500 at one time 
Paul tells us. If that was not true, many of those that were there who were being claimed to have seen Messiah could have said, we never saw him. We don't know what Paul's talking about. But Paul said over 500 at one time. His brothers saw him and he names James. He mentions he appeared to all of the apostles. And then he says, and last of all, he appeared unto me, who is the least of all apostles. So we have the eyewitness testimony of one who's willing to go down in print for this. But there's more. Not only is there that empty tomb, not only is there the configuration of the cloths, not only is there the testimony of eyewitnesses, but there are the transformed lives from that day to the present. You speak with anyone who embraces Yeshua as Messiah, they'll tell you why are they the way they are that we see them as for good? It's because the Lord lives in them. It's because the Lord has changed my life. It's because the Lord has made me to become something I otherwise would never have been able to become. And the reason why that is so is because he is alive and he's transforming individual lives. So if you need a transformation of your life, we end where we started. You need to go to the one who has all authority. You need to go to the one who impressed those who heard him speak and said, we're not just impressed about his intelligence, his insightfulness. We're impressed with him because he has the authority to say the things and do the things he says he will do. He can make us right with God. He can make us right with ourselves. And he can make us right in the world in which we live, dealing with whatever challenges or trials we may face. Because he is alive and can empower us and make us different. Now, if there's anything about this account, back to the Sermon on the Mount, that is distressing, it is the ending as well. For while they say they saw him as one having authority, I would much rather have preferred, and they saw him as the Messiah of Israel and hailed him as the son of David and worshipped him as their king. But they don't. At least not all of them. Maybe some of them, maybe some of them later. That's the sad part about that. They were impressed with him. They were impressed with what he taught. They were moved by his truths, but they didn't embrace him personally as their Savior. That still happens today, doesn't it? Maybe there's some here this morning who don't know the Lord. And as you're hearing me speak, you're probably saying, those are interesting. <laughs> and rather impressive, too. And you may be saying, you know, he really did say some powerful things. I got questions, but he did say some powerful things. And he, you make a decent case, maybe not a great case, but a decent case for the resurrection of Messiah. But you still won't embrace him like them. But that doesn't have to be you. You can step back from the crowd and say, you know what? Even the little bit that I was touched by is enough to move me to that point where I would say, Lord, if you could do something with this life, you can have my life and do it. And what you must do, do quickly. 
Because if it is left to myself, I'll make more of a mess of it than I already have. So that's the invitation the Lord provides to each and every one of us. Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. It doesn't matter if you've known the Lord for a hundred years or you've not met Him yet. Come unto me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That sounds like a great deal to me. And I pray that everyone here will take advantage of his invitation and not delay. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day. We are in need of you. That's ultimately what your word tells us. And you have made yourself available to us. So Lord, I pray for each person who is here. I pray, Lord, that they would not delay in turning their hearts and indeed their lives over to you. And so if there's anyone here this morning who wants to embrace Messiah, here's a simple prayer you can follow me in. Lord, I thank you for being Savior and Lord, Messiah. I thank you for being the one who is the great teacher as well as the one who has risen from the dead and has all authority. Might you forgive me of my waywardness and might you come into my life, change me, forgive me, make me your child and transform me to be more like your son. And if you prayed that prayer, the Lord has come into your life and we can conclude by simply saying, Lord, thank you for your gift of eternal life. If you know the Lord, maybe you've known Him for a little or a long time, and you're thinking about the challenges that you face, the prayer is not really very different. It is really the same. Lord, it is you that we need, though we oftentimes feel it's relief from our suffering. It's really not that. It's you we need more of and not necessarily less suffering and so Father our prayer is that you would help us to be focused on you and not the circumstances around us that you would help us to be faithful to live before you and not merely to escape from our trials that you would help us to rely upon you, to bring us moment by moment, step by step, along the path that you have charted out for us. And so may it be upon you that we rely and that we trust. In other words, Lord, increase our faith. Enable us to trust you in the dark places as well as the light. And enable us to rejoice in whatever state we are in, as Paul says, whatever condition we find ourselves in, may we rejoice always. Why? Because our Lord is risen, risen indeed. And he is alive 
in our world, but he is alive in our life. We praise you, O resurrected Messiah. And we would say with John, might you come quickly, we pray. For we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.